examine the first century very deeply. Uh, our goal has been more or less to get into the history that occurred after the New Testament was completed. And at the same time, we're going through Acts on Sunday mornings usually. And so for that reason, we just kind of dealt with some of the highlights. We looked at uh, Herod Agrippa and his persecution of the church and what happened to him. And we looked at Nero as well. And that was important because the church of the first century, of course, uh, faced a lot of persecution and uh, first at the hands of Jews and some pagans, but then the Roman government themselves started to persecute the church. And uh, Nero was the first of the Roman emperors to persecute uh, God's people as well. And so we looked at all that. And then another important part that we ended on was we saw what a lot of times has been called the great separation that occurred between church and synagogue, you might say. Because at the beginning... Uh, the Christians were seen by many as simply another sect within Judaism. Uh, but as time went on, and the Jews more and more were persecuting the Christians, there was a greater separation occurring. And even the Romans themselves began to see, no, this is not just another sect of Jews. This is something that they considered distinct. But when the Jewish war happened against the Romans and the Jewish nation collapsed in AD 70, there's when the separation really occurred because those Jews who were Christians were viewed as being uh, traitors because they would not partake in the battle with the Romans because they knew the words of Christ and they knew that the nation of Israel was under God's judgment for their rejection of the Messiah. And so that caused a great split. And we saw how uh, after the fall in AD 70, the... Uh, Sadducees lost their influence, the Essenes, or the Essenes, excuse me, uh, disappeared, and uh, the Pharisees became the dominant group then within Judaism, and even in their liturgy, that is in their prayer book, they placed a curse upon Christians, so Jews who were believers could no longer go to the synagogue and, and rightly worship God. And then in um, A.D. 132 to 135, that final Jewish rebellion that took place, we see there that the man who led that, who led the Jews in that rebellion, just horrifically persecuted the Christians, worse than anybody else uh, that he had persecuted. And so we see the split. And so that's why when we continue on now, as you go through <coughs> 2,000 years of church history, for the most part, you see the church is primarily Gentile. You saw this taking place in the New Testament. It began with the Jews. The gospel went to the Samaritans, then it went out to the Gentiles, and you have more Gentile churches than Jewish churches, of course. But now, when after this split took place, Jerusalem and the church there had less and less influence, and you see the church is primarily Gentile. If skeptics will ask, well, why is it that most Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah if he really was the Messiah? Well, a good response to that is simply read the book of Romans, right? right? Read Romans chapters 9 through 11, what you'll see is this. That in God's plan, his eternal plan, this period that we're now living in is the time of the Gentiles. And uh, you'll see even as you read the Old Testament, it was always God's plan to bring light to the Gentiles, to save many amongst the Gentile nations, and to bring them to faith. And so that's why when we study church history from this point on, there are Jews involved, absolutely, but for the most part, the believers are Gentile, just as scripture would lead us to expect that that would happen. I know that there is disagreements among Christians, but it, it seems really clear, at least to me when I read scripture and in the book of Romans, that prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be a 
great and gathering of many of the Jews brought to faith in the Messiah uh, shortly before his return. But now, since we've covered that section, we're moving out of the first century, we're kind of at the end of the first century, and going into the second century, the 100s AD. And last time we did look at the persecution of the 12 apostles and their close associates, and we saw how John the Apostle was the only one of the 12 who did not die a martyr's death. He was persecuted, he was sent to the Isle of Patmos, where he was there as a prisoner, and the Emperor Domitian was uh, a fierce persecutor of the church. And of course, he, I didn't go through this, I don't think, but he was assassinated, and so persecution was lifted for a time. But John died probably around the year AD 98. And the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, was completed around between 92, 96 AD. And so that's where we left off. So now... As uh, we are finished with that, we're coming to what is known in church history as the Age of the Apostolic Fathers. That's what it is called now, the period that we're looking at. Historians often refer to the Christian writers and teachers who lived after the apostles for the next five or six centuries as the Age of the Early Church Fathers. Oftentimes, this age is also referred to as the patristic age. That comes from both the Greek and the Latin, the word pater, which means father. So the age of the fathers, the patristic age. Now, out of the age, though, of the church fathers, which occurred, you know, the first five or six centuries after the apostles died, the earliest of that, the first generation of that, is called the age of the apostolic fathers. So just think five or six centuries but just the beginning of that period, the Apostolic Fathers, because some of these men knew an apostle or had been discipled by somebody who knew an apostle, and so that's why it is referred to in that way this particular period. About the years 95 to 140 AD, so about a 45-year period now we're going to be looking at the age of the Apostolic Fathers. So I have it up here on the screen if you see that there. These uh, are the early writings that we have from this time period. So let me just name off, we have eight of them here. The Didache, the letter of Clement of Rome, I know he's sitting right here too, but uh, <laughs> uh, the letter of Clement of Rome, the letter of Diognetes, the shepherd of Hermes, the letter of Barnabas, the fragment of Papias, the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, and the letter of Polycarp to the Philippians. So what our plan today is, is to uh, finish, or if we don't finish, at least we're going to read through the Didache. These other ones, we're not going to actually read through the whole uh, material because it would just be way too long. But the Didache is fairly short, so we're going to plan to read through that. Now, let me tell you something interesting about this, and this is kind of a lesson just for um, anybody who watches, let's say, the History Channel or the Discovery Channel <laughs> or National Geographic. If you see anything that they do about church history, it is... Just to be honest, I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. I yeah, mean, they, yeah. they, it's, it's either they're extremely ignorant or they're uh, extremely deceptive. And, and they, they always try to misrepresent everything that disagrees with what church historians for centuries and centuries understand. But one of the situation, I was listening to this a couple of years ago, I think it was on James White's The Dividing Line. I think it was the BBC put this out. Uh, uh, an episode on the Didache. And, of course, they had all the scary music on, and the 
background and everything. And, and uh, it comes on up there. The church has a secret. They're hiding something. A secret book known as the Didache. And they don't want anyone to know about it because it doesn't have the deity of Christ in it. And so the early Christians must not have believed that Jesus was God. So they're keeping it hidden. And so they interviewed on there an Eastern Orthodox priest who didn't seem to know very much. But that was the whole point of the episode. Now, James White is sitting there, interesting. He's like, hmm. And he kind of sits here behind himself. Right here I have in my library the Didache. <laughs> the secret book that supposedly nobody knows about. In fact, uh, my own library, it's right in here. <laughs> it's, have it in English. It's no secret book at all. And But you know what's sad about that is most people will watch that and yep. they'll believe it yep. because they don't know any better. And even if they don't think about it a lot, a lot of these people, if you sometimes, you know, on the street, if you're sharing the gospel or talking with somebody, or just somebody you know, well, that's not true, but, you know, the people decided what books would be in the Bible, and someone might say, there's this, even this secret book that nobody put in there. Why wasn't it in there? Because subconsciously it's there because they saw it somewhere, even if they don't remember it. And it plants these, this way of thinking in their mind that simply is not true. But uh, the Didache is simply a Greek word for teaching. The full title of the book is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles through the Twelve Apostles. And uh, it, it's, it's probably about uh, 100 AD is probably when it dates to. Some believe it's a little bit earlier than that. Some believe just slightly later. But around 100 AD is what it actually dates to. It originated in Syria. And, the, you know, here's the thing. These people on this BBC show, I believe it was, they'll say, you know, it doesn't have the deity of Christ in it. But you have to understand, the Didache is not very long, and it's not a systematic theology. The Didache is simply a, a manual for the way that Christians are to live. You're not mm -hmm. going to put every doctrine within such a short manual like that. It was written possibly for new converts. It seems those who were converted out of paganism, so who did not know a lot about now that they are Christians, how are they to live? And so it gives a lot of counsel to young converts who came out of paganism. It was discovered in the 1870s, probably published in 1883. We do not know who wrote it, though. It is clearly post-gospel writing because, as you read through it, he's quoting from the Gospels. So he was very familiar with them. And it's divided into two sections. It's divided into, the first one is the way of life and the way of death, and the second section concerns various church practices. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put this down, and I'm going to just pull it out here. And uh, as I read through it, I'll stop at times and uh, make some comments. And if anyone has a question or comments to make as well, you may do so. So we'll just try to read through it. Uh, I don't think you're, there's probably many churches this morning who are gathered together reading through the Didache. So <laughs> it's kind of a rare thing. Amen. But you know something? It is. You know, it could be asked why even do such a thing like this. You know? But I think in our church, I counted, we have 12, 12 sessions a month that we're together. So I think two of those we can give to church history. Um, and, you know, when you, as we learn what the early Christians believed and practiced, you can see that our line stretches, you know, throughout 2,000 years of history. It's very Amen. encouraging. And as you see also the persecution that they faced, when we face those trials, uh, it helps us understand our own context. And it's encouraging for us to know that we stand in a long line of believers who face the same things we faced and believe the same things we believe. So let me begin chapter one. So beginning the first section, the way of life and the way of death. 
There are two ways, one of life and one of death. But a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, thou shalt love God, who made thee. Second, thy neighbor as thyself. And all things whatsoever thou wouldest should not occur to thee, thou also to another do not do. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless them that curse you, and pray for your enemies, and fast for them that persecute you. For what thank is there if ye love them that love you? Do not also the Gentiles do the same? But do ye love them that hate you, and ye shall not have an enemy? Abstain thou from fleshly and worldly lusts. If one give thee a blow upon thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, and thou shalt be perfect. If one impress thee for one mile, go with him too. If one take away thy cloak, give him also thy coat. If one take from thee thine own, ask it not back, for indeed thou art not able. Give to everyone that asketh thee, and ask it not back, for the Father willeth that to all should be given of our own blessings or free gifts. Happy is he that giveth according to the commandment, for he is guiltless. Woe to him that receiveth, for if one having need receiveth, he is guiltless. But he that receiveth not having need shall pay the penalty. Why he received, and for what, and coming into straits, he shall be examined concerning the things which he hath done. And he shall not escape thence until he pay back the last farthing. But also now concerning this, it hath been said, Let thine alms sweat in thy hands until thou know to whom thou shouldest give. So that's just the first little section there. What you can see there, this is the first part of the first section. The writer is clearly familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, right? And so, again, post-Gospel uh, writing, but not, not too long after, a few decades. Okay, chapter 2 of the first section. And uh, what we're going to have here is clearly a vice list. Now, the, he, he lists these vices here, but again, the first section of the book, The Way of Life, The Way of Death, he's dealing with the way of life. So he's telling him, this is the way you should live. So he lists these vices here, don't live in this way. And the second commandment of the teaching, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit pederasty, thou shalt not commit fornication, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not practice magic. Thou shalt not practice witchcraft. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. Just stop there. That's really relevant if you think about last week, right? I mean, abortion is not something that the church has been dealing with just the last century or so. This is something that the early Christians dealt with in the Roman Empire. You know, abortion is something that was very common for centuries and centuries among the pagans. And even in early church history... Uh, many of the Christians in the Roman Empire, they would go out to the streets, you know, and they would pick up the babies who had been left out on the street to die. They would adopt them as their own. Uh, but also, they were very much, not only were the Jews prior to them against abortion, the Christians from the very beginning were against abortion. So anyone today who says they're a Christian and claims that uh, this is just a controversial issue, it shouldn't really be uh, something that is uh, debated amongst Christians is completely wrong. Yes, can't stand on the Bible for that, but also church history, he can't use that as to a support of what he's saying. And uh, even so, Tim Keller came out not so long ago and said that Christians should not split. Churches should not debate if whether or not abortion should be legal or illegal in a, in a culture. It, it, we, we would say it's a sin, but it should not be debated if it's illegal or not. So Just ho horrible. But here we have it very clear. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. 
Also, what's interesting is they talk about magic and witchcraft, and I know Wendy was mentioning this before we had kind of talked about that, where, you know, nowadays there are so many children's videos that will show magic, witchcraft, in such a way where they present it to children as something that's entertaining. And it makes them think is that this isn't something that's really so bad. Uh, you think of Harry Potter, there's many books, and even a lot of homeschoolers read these things, watch these things. Christian homeschoolers, it's, it's not right. It's something that we should present to the children as something that God hates uh, when you are working with uh, demonic spirits to gain control and power over things and others. Continuing, thou shalt not covet the things of thy neighbor. Thou shalt not forswear thyself. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not speak evil. Thou shalt bear no grudge. Thou shalt not be double-minded nor double-tongued, for to be double-tongued is a snare of death. Thy speech shall not be false, nor empty, but fulfilled by deed. Thou shalt not be covetous, nor rapacious, nor a hypocrite, nor evil disposed, nor haughty. Thou shalt not take evil counsel against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not hate any man, but some thou shalt reprove. And concerning some thou shalt pray, and some thou sh shalt thou love more than thy own life. So many things there concerning the way that the new convert was to live. Okay, third part. My child, flee from every evil thing and from every likeness of it. Be not prone to anger, for anger leadeth the way to murder. Neither jealous, nor quarrelsome, nor of hot temper, for out of all these murders are engendered. My child, be not a lustful one, for lust leadeth the way to fornication. Neither a filthy talker, nor a lofty eye, for out of all these adulteries are engendered. My child, be not an observer of omens, since it leadeth the way to idolatry. Neither an enchanter, nor an astrologer, nor, nor a purifier, excuse me, nor be willing to look at these things, for out of all minded, for out of all these blasphemies are engendered. Be, but be thou meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. Be long-suffering and pitiful and guileless and gentle and good and always trembling at the words which thou hast heard. Thou shalt not exalt thyself, nor give over confidence to thy soul. Thy soul shall not be joined with lofty ones, but with just and lowly ones shall it have its intercourse. Various precepts concerning how we are to live as well. And uh, here we go. My child, him that speaketh to thee the word of God, remember night and day. And thou shalt honor him as the Lord. For in the place whence lordly rule is uttered, there is the Lord. So in other words, he's saying respect those who are your teachers in, in the church. And thou shalt seek out day by day the faces of the saints in order that thou mayest rest upon their words. Thou shalt not, not long for division, but shalt bring those who contend to peace. So again, avoid division, be with Christians, have their fellowship. Uh, you're going to learn from them. They're going to learn from you. Very important in light of the fallen world that we live in. Thou shalt judge righteously. Thou shalt not respect persons in reproving for transgressions. Thou shalt not be undecided whether it shall be or no. Be not a stretcher forth of the hands to receive and a drawer of them back to give. If thou hast aught through thy hands, thou shalt give ransom for thy sins. Thou shalt not hesitate to give, nor murmur when thou givest. For thou shalt know who is the good repayer of the hire. Thou shalt not turn away from him... That is in want, but thou shalt share all things with thy brother, 
and shalt not say that they are thine own. For if ye are partakers in that which is immortal, how much more in the things which are mortal. So again, be willing to give to those in need. Okay, now, thou shalt not remove thy hand from thy son or from thy daughter, but from their youth shalt thou teach them the fear of God. Thou shalt not enjoin aught in thy bitterness upon thy bondmen or maidservant, who hope in the same God, lest ever they shall fear not God, who is over both. For he cometh not to call according to the outward appearance, but unto them whom the Spirit hath prepared. And ye bondmen shall be subject to your masters as to a type of God in modesty and fear. So again, the relationship of parents with their children, bringing them up in the fear of the Lord. And the relationship of, of slaves and masters, how they were to treat one another. Thou shalt hate all hypocrisy and everything which is not pleasing to the Lord. Do thou in no wise forsake the commandments of the Lord, but thou shalt keep what thou hast received, neither adding thereto nor taking away therefrom. In the church thou shalt acknowledge thy transgressions, and thou shalt not come near for thy prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. So that's the first section concerning well, the first part, the way of life. This is how we are to live, is what he is saying. Now let's go to the way of death. And this is shorter, but again, he gives a vice list here. This is the way not to live. And the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and full of curse. Murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, witchcrafts, rapines, false witnessings, hypocrisies, double-heartedness, deceit, Haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness, persecutors of the good, hating truth, loving a lie, not knowing a reward for righteousness, not cleaving to good nor to righteous judgment, watching not for that which is good, but for that which is evil, from whom meekness and endurance are far, loving vanities, pursuing requital, not pitying a poor man, not laboring for the afflicted, not knowing him that made them, murderers of children, destroyers of the handiwork of God, turning away from him that is in want, afflicting him that is distressed, advocates of the rich, lawless judges of the poor, utter sinners, be delivered children from all these. And so you see here clearly once again this vice list, this is how you are not to live. And you'll notice again here he mentions murderers of children. And he says to murder a children is to dis to murder a child is to destroy the handiwork of God. And so, you know, I don't know if he's applying that to in the womb or outside the womb, but nevertheless, I would say both apply. And the Romans and the pagans were well known for doing both. It's interesting, even so, if you're ever out, uh, like we were last Sunday, a common argument that I've been getting is that in the book of Genesis, that God breathed into Adam. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I heard it too, yeah, yeah, several times. Last year we had that too at the Capitol, but that's completely misusing that text. Of course, Adam was not in the womb. He was formed out of the dust of the ground. But whenever you're destroying what God is doing, you are murdering. It is, it is, it is destroying his handiwork. And so this is something that the, the Christians were not to do. So that's the first part now that indicated the way of life and the way of death. So we have some time. Let's move to the second section. Hey, Dean, can I just yes, say something yes. about what you just said? Yep. You know who believed that? that that the baby isn't living and doesn't have life yeah it was a very recent pastor who died now who i believe is in hell but peter ruckman taught that peter ruckman taught that you could kill the baby uh that it was not a human being until it took its first breath using that exact passage 
yeah. which is a stunning thing. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. But anyway, I just wanted to, it just, you just jogged that in my memory because it's, it's such an evil thing. Yeah. Such an evil thing. Yeah. Oh, so amazing, too. I noticed ran into some of those, you know, several people you've tried to use that argument. And the moment you get it, but try to tell them that, well, they, that's came completely out of context that God created the first man fully formed yeah. and breathed in old light. Then you kind of go on. Now, right, the mode of, you know, creation is they're born in the womb and, and formed in the womb, you know. Uh, you know, they start blasphemy and everything and that. But that's that's all, that's that's what I remember we pretty like, yeah. To me, it's the best, best one I can think of because it, it's just scripture. How else do you answer that? Well, yeah, but you need to try, but then they just want to shut you down. But that's such a taken so out of context, you know, it's different from a man, the first man, fully formed, and then God breathes into the breath of life, compared to now, well, obviously, right, the common sense, no one's born fully formed, you know, no one comes, no one's just fully formed all of a sudden, you know, yeah. and it just shows how, how far, how far down it is, you know, it's not just evil, but that whole thing, you reprobate, you gotta understand, not only can they do no good, they can't even think logically. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, we move on then to the next part of the Didache, which is uh, concerns and various church practices. And so we will kind of get a glimpse on, you know, some of the church practices around 100 AD or so at some of the council that's given here. So continuing, see that no one caused thee to err from this way of the teaching, since apart from God it teacheth thee. For if thou art able to bear all the yoke of the Lord, thou wilt be perfect. But if thou art not able, what thou art able to do? And concerning food, bear what thou art able, but against that which is sacrificed to idols, be exceedingly on thy guard, for it is the service of dead gods. And so, of course, Paul deals with this a little bit in the book of 1 Corinthians, but Again, he gives some counsel there concerning that. Now in section 7, we're going to have one of the earliest references to baptism outside of the New Testament. And it, it's interesting because it follows the formula of Matthew 28, 19, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this section here, this is the reason why those who are oneness Pentecostals or those who are part of the Jesus-only movement they pushed the Didache back and they dated to about 250 or in the 300s because uh, if this is if Didache, which I get any reasonable historian would say it's about 100 AD, it would disprove what, what they're saying concerning we are not to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but in Jesus' name only. So is what they say. They're, they have a church in Mandan and of course the sanctuary, that big building down by Broadway here in Bismarck. The one is Pentecostal. It's a cult. You know, they deny the Trinity. They teach that uh, if you're saved, that you will speak in tongues. It's absolutely the case. And they deny justification by faith alone and so forth. But this is one reason why they do not like this section. And some of them even go so far as to say that Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 are not original in the scriptures, although there is absolutely no proof of that whatsoever. So was somebody back there going to say something? Oh, I saw your hand going. I just didn't know what was going on. Okay. So, <clears throat> so let me read this small section here uh, concerning baptism. And concerning baptism, thus baptize ye. 
Having first said all these things, baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in living water, some of this is interesting, you know, in running water. But if thou have not living water, baptize into other water. And if thou canst not in cold, in warm. But if thou have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can. But thou shalt order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So some of this is quite interesting. You know, in Rome, they had uh, many places with running water. Uh, so I, I don't know why they give that, why this council is given, you know, in running water, if not in still water, if not in cold and warm and so forth. But, you know, some things are interesting where um, we see clearly that immersion is the preferred mode of baptism. In other words, you know, into the water. And they said, if there is no water that you can do that in, like if you don't have any tub or whatever of water to be able to do that in, then pour it on the head three times. I know there's debate about this. Some missionaries I know who have been in desert places have wondered, I've heard of this before, how do we baptize our converts? We have no place with water for miles and miles. In years before, when you couldn't just you know haul water there or something like that. And so what, what, how do we handle that? But... At least it was the opinion of this man. If you have no water to put him in, you know, uh, pour the pour the water on on the head. What's also interesting is uh, clearly here, it's it's thought that only believers will be baptized because you notice it's said that they uh, must fast beforehand. And again, that's not in scripture that you must fast beforehand. And obviously they're they are to be examined. And so if they can make these decisions. Uh, to do these things, it's, it's understood that, that these are not infants. So, earliest reference to baptism that we have outside of the New Testament, and uh, this is what is written about it. Okay, section 8. <clears throat> but let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. But do ye fast on the fourth and the preparation day? So, why, does, why is that said? Well, Monday and Thursday were the Jewish fasts. And Wednesday and the preparation day before the, the Jewish Sabbath were, were the days that he recommends Christians to fast on. Again, this not in scripture, but again, this is what, uh, what the writer is, is talking about. Neither pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, thus pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debt, as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Thrice in the day, thus pray. So, again, he, he gives that section uh, of prayer as Jesus taught us and uh, to pray. And what's interesting, he recommends praying that three times a day. Which, again, it, it's interesting. It depends on, on our own Christian walk. I'm sure none of us or most of us here are probably not used to praying in, in that way, nor would we even maybe say that that's what Jesus meant for us to do, right? Uh, but the, the one thing I think that I appreciate is, is, is a disciplined, yeah. he's promoting a disciplined Christian life and, yeah. uh, and, and pray throughout the day. So uh, that's He appears to uh, know several portions of scripture yeah. from Romans. I mean, I heard him talking about Romans. I heard him, I mean, 2 Timothy first for sure. Yeah. And now, now Matthew is yeah, yeah, he was clearly referring back to Scripture over and over again. Yep, yep, absolutely. 
Okay, just a few more minutes here. Uh, section 9 here. Now concerning, okay, now this deals with the Lord's Supper, uh, which was a central part of Christian worship at this time. Now look here. Now concerning the Thanksgiving, okay, that they have in here, the Eucharist. Now remember, Eucharist, when you think of that word, especially if you're former Roman Catholic, it scares you a little bit. But remember, before the Roman Catholic Church as it is today came about, and before the Mass turned into what it did, a blasphemous ceremony, the early Christians used the term Eucharist, which simply means Thanksgiving. So there's nothing wrong with the word itself. Okay, the Roman Catholics may have abused it, but the early Christians did use it. Now concerning the Thanksgiving or Eucharist, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David thy servant, which thou madest known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou madest known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let no one eat or drink of your thanksgiving or Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. And concerning this also, the Lord hath said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. So, uh, you see here the prayer that oftentimes was prayed. And we see here that only the baptized were allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. I know when I was down here in Roswell, uh, New Mexico, uh, a month ago or whatever it was, I know before the Lord's Supper there, they, they, they require them to, uh, they must be believers, they must be baptized, and they need to be a member of a local church uh, somewhere. That's, that's a Bible-believing church. So it's interesting. Which, in all reality, that's the way that the church at this time uh, handled it. And in fact, again, think of the, the, the word mass. Again, if you're a former Roman Catholic, uh, when you think of the mass, you think of a, a, a blasphemous ceremony, right? But again, the, the term has been abused. The, the word mass was used by early Christians before that. It simply means dismissal. So you have to understand that the church at this time, when they would gather together, what oftentimes was the practice, is the service had two parts to it. The first part Anyone who's welcome, believers, unbelievers, even believers who were not yet baptized, who were being taught. And after that, they were dismissed. Whoever was not a believer, whoever was not a baptized believer, they were dismissed. And then only those who were baptized believers were in the second part of the service, which included the Lord's Supper. And so that's where that comes from. Um, I got more to say a little bit later, but notice something here. There's nothing here about a Eucharistic sacrifice. There's nothing about transubstantiation and nothing about a priesthood being involved that is needed at the Lord's Supper. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop there and uh, Lord willing, next time we should easily finish the Didache. There's not too much left, but we just don't have enough time today. Any final comments? I just think it's interesting, historically, as you look at those words, mass, uh, you know, these different things. Um, catechize is another one, right? That when you when you say the word catechize, an ex-Catholic, which I am, immediately it brings unholy things to your mind. But in actuality, it was spoken that way. It's in Scripture. I mean, we find it in Scripture, the word catechize, right in there. And so it's interesting how they have taken that which is really holy and that we should freely use that kind of language because the early church clearly did how they how they kind of captured that and used it in such a 
blasphemous in a holy way. Yep. Yep. I think a part of this depends on the way people grow up. Uh, some of this depends on the church, churches you've been in. Uh, for example, in India, I use the example at, a, at conferences. I'll do this a lot. I'll ask, how many of you in here are pastors? And most people raise their hand. And then I ask, how many people in here, how many of you in here are bishops? And nobody raises their hand. <laughs> and to say they're a bishop, and you can do the same thing here yeah, in, oh in yeah. the United States. That, the, the bishop, in their mind, they're thinking something different. But if you're a pastor, biblically, you're a bishop. And so, I mean, even thinking our own church, can you imagine? Hey, uh, the bishop, Mike, he's, he, he's back there. <laughs> Howard, the bishop, Howard, he's back there. You know, I'll probably scare a few people. But again, just, it's interesting thinking these things through to try to have a, a balanced and biblical mindset. So that's most of the Didache, uh, earliest writing that we have outside the New Testament. Lord willing, we'll read through the rest of it next time. You know, one thing yep. I, I just wanted to comment on, it's interesting when you read this, right? You know, before this day and age of easy believism, this is how the apostolic fathers, those that were directly linked to the apostles, how they interpreted scripture. Mm -hmm. Which basically everything I've heard, we'd agree with. Yeah. You know, even that, you know, like, well, they said to fast. We recommend no fast. We just said, well, you don't have to. It's not, you know, it's not a sin, but it's a good thing. Yeah. You know, but now you, you know, look at the way it is now that the vast majority of churches in the West right now would say, if we read that, not saying it's a dedicate or anything, right, our, our churches that teach like we do would say, we're mean, we're adding works to salvation, we're, they twist everything, right? In other words, they're saying, no, you believed on Jesus Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, henceforth endeavor to live as Christ yeah. commands. It's always been that way. Yep. <laughs> And it just, it goes to back it up. That's how the apostolic fathers saw it. Yep. And I'd, I'd say, right, that, 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 not that it's a scriptural, but it all backs up scripture. Sure. You know, and it, it, was, it was that simple. You know, they read it. That's what scripture says. That, okay, <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Mike, would you like to close us in prayer? Sure. Uh, Father, again, thank you for uh, the lesson this morning on church history. It is so... I believe vital to our understanding as we look at our own doctrines, as we gather together this morning, as we gather around the Lord's table, as we uh, sing uh, these songs, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, as we um, preach the word. It's so encouraging to hear uh, church history that this is precisely how they did it. They had a real understanding, if you will, of the regulative principle. Father, may we honor you in that this morning. May you be glorified in that. And may your saints be edified in it. May sinners be convicted. And Father, we thank you again for your glorious work. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Dean, if you, if you don't know the Lord Bishop from the Independent Baptist Church, I flee doors. I was just thinking about that. Just thinking you said that.